0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you guys. I'm going to open us in prayer, and um, but something I want to mention uh, is that really any time we come up here to speak, we open in prayer, and um, of course, that's a good thing. We want to ask God's blessing. We want to ask for God's help to understand, to receive what He's trying to give to us. But really, I, I want to point out, particularly this morning, uh, I think the Lord laid it on my heart that I want to ask you to continue in prayer throughout the message. You should do that anyway. Ask ask the Lord what He's what He's trying to say to you in this situation. Of course, you want to compare with Scripture what's being said. You want to understand uh, is is what we are saying true and right and from God. But at the same time, you need to be asking the Lord. Okay, Lord, so that's true. What does that mean for me? What does that mean I should do? What steps should I take? And so, particularly, I wanted to remind you of that this morning. That I'm going to open in prayer, but we're not done praying when I say amen. I want you to continue in prayer throughout, okay? So let's begin in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to be able to talk to you. I thank you that you've given us your word. We're not left alone. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to make it possible for us to come to know you, to be forgiven of our um, awful sins and the debt that we owe because of that, and our heart of rebellion against you. You've made it possible through Christ that we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, we can be restored uh, to relationship, right relationship, fellowship with you. Lord, this morning as we come to talk about what you're doing in Russia and what you did and what you will continue to do and what you're doing here in Fallon, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, that we would be struck by what we hear and by what we see and that we would be sensitive to you and to your leading about what, therefore, that means in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I got back, like, a little over a week ago, about not quite a week and a half ago, got back from Russia, and um, so I've been kind of cooking on all the things that, that the Lord did there and, and the things that he showed me, the things he challenged me with and successes and failures and kind of what I saw. And so this is a great opportunity that I, I want to give a report to you guys about what the Lord was doing there. Um, and so I wanted to go back and just kind of do as a, a little bit of a review. On July 6th, July 7th, the night um, of July 6th, July 7th, that was a Friday night, Saturday morning, I believe, there was a horrible rainstorm that had been going on actually for several days in southern Russia. In uh, Actually, in, in Krasnodar, there was a lot of rain, and then there was lots and lots of rain in the region around... Um, Gelendzik and Novorossiysk uh, and and Krimsk and uh, Nizhny Bukhansky, which is where we ended up. So closer towards the sea, lots of mountains, not high mountains, low mountains, but it, it kind of, uh, they sort of feed into uh, almost like a, not exactly valley, all, valley, almost like a gorge, almost like a gorge. It kind of comes together. So it really funnels water badly. So that rain piled up, piled up, came out of the mountains and just washed through. And so I wanted to, to remind us kind of of a few pictures of the destruction. This picture was taken two days after the flood happened. In some places, the water got up to 20 or 25 feet deep. That's how bad it was. And that's probably closer down to the river. But the river's really choked by trees, and so the water can't just rush through. It kind of backs up and builds up, and then you have things like this happening. That's somebody's gate. Their garden gate is just trashed. Everything's washed away. It's amazing. So these are pictures you've seen before. I showed these before, and I kind of want to show that as a review. Uh, you, uh, you can't really see it in the light there. Can anyone read the word? Like if you, you see 16 over here, if you go left, from, can you, anyone read that word? Looks like chalk, right? Like it's a chocolate factory, you know? That'd be wishful thinking. No, it's not a chocolate factory. It's, uh, it's the word snos, the, the uh, Russian word for demolish. Because it's completely destroyed, they're going to come in and they're just going to going to take it out. So this this happened just because of the flood. The structure wasn't wasn't very sound, you know. Of course, in a in an old building like that, but uh, that's what happened to it. Here you have the front of a house completely destroyed. It's just the front wall has fallen outwards. This is an apartment building, just a regular old Russian apartment building. You can look up at the second floor windows there, and you see that you know it's not like something you'd see in Fallon or Fernley or even Reno. But, um, you know, it's just a normal apartment building that people live in. And then you look at the ground floor and you see the water level midway up the bottom floor windows. That's where the water was. And uh, so the entire ground floor is just soaked, drenched. In Russian, they would say it's drowned. They use the same the same verb uh, for if a person drowns and dies or uh, a car or something else gets flooded, it's drowned. And it's just nasty. It stinks. Everything is soaked. And it's not—it wasn't clean water that washed through. It was, you know, muddy, nasty stuff. And so, it really was noticeable, particularly the first couple of days I went down there, how bad it smelled, just from all the rotting stuff. And uh, I try not to imagine too much. So those those pictures were all in the the city of, of Krimsk, and I don't know the population official, officially of Krimsk, but it's a—I don't know—I'm guessing hundred thousand, maybe maybe hundred and fifty thousand. In, in Krimsk itself, I don't know. But um, we showed up there. Originally, our desire had been to go and connect with the church there in Krimsk and work with them and help to bolster their name, their reputation, in a sense, in that community. Because here's a time of tragedy. And so there's opportunity for the Christians involved with this church to go and help the people around them who maybe don't have any other help or maybe who just need a witness of the gospel in their lives. So that that was my desire in going there. I, I wanted to, to really increase the Lord's reputation connected with this church in Kremsk. And so we showed up there, and I don't want to go into too many details about it and, and whatever, but essentially we showed up the first day, the day after I got there, and we saw that the uh, church had ripped the roof off. They had been needing to replace the roof for a while anyway, and since they had the floor trashed and they were ripping the floor out and stuff like that, they decided at the same time they may as well rip the roof off and do that at the same time. So they were sort of extending their construction project. And so I was, you know, thinking about that. I, I don't, you know, I don't know. We need to, you know, here's opportunity. Here's the crisis moment. Let's get out and help people. Let's be involved in people's lives. I understand the idea of taking care of, you know, uh, loving especially the believers. Scripture talks about that. I understand that idea. But to be going into this work project with, the, with this church building was a real challenge to me. I thought, you know, I think your resources and your time may be better used that way. We came back the next day, or it was actually a day and a half later, to the same place, and they had actually revised their their roof construction that they were doing, and they, they were doing it a little fancier or a little more. The construction project was going to take longer, because they had made some decisions about, well, we have the roof off, now let's do some more work on it, so... That really was a challenge. That was, that was hard for me to take because here's the crisis situation when it's an opportunity for Christians to get out and sacrifice their time and their money and their energy to sacrifice their lives and die to self and be out helping people. And instead, we were working on the church building. Now, the reason that was so challenging to me and not just uh, frustrating or annoying or appeared wrong in my sight is that I could see myself walking down that same line of thought to end up in that same spot. And I was really challenged by that because I thought it would be real easy for me to think, well, the floor's trashed, you know, we've got to repair the floor, and we don't want to put in this nice floor when our roof kind of leaks a little bit anyway. So, you know, it's it's kind of one step after another kind of leads you to the point where you're thinking, well, let's just take the roof off and replace that. And since we've got it off, we may as well do a good job. May as well do it upright. And so we start investing all of our attention in on ourselves, right? And so we're just looking at ourselves. And I could see myself going down that same path. And so it was very challenging to me. I thought the Lord was really kind of pointing at something in my own life that I could very easily do that. That here I have an opportunity to reach out, but I but I better do this thing first in my own my own little circle, right? We we better huddle together and get this thing figured out in our in in our own huddle first before we go and reach out. And so no outreach happens. My my prognosis in this situation with the church is that they're going to continue. On the, on the construction of the building. They're going to get it refined. They're going to make it very nice. And the, the idea was a very good plan. The idea is that that church is going to be a distribution center for relief aid materials to come through. A center for counseling, a center for distribution of, of food and diapers and things like that. It's a great idea. It was a great idea. But it led to let's build our building bigger instead of let's go out and be in people's lives. And so I was personally very challenged by that. So Steve and I, Steve is the missionary that I, that I was working there with, friend of ours uh, who lives in Krasnodar, uh, their family, great friends with our family. We decided let's go a little bit beyond Krimsk itself to an outlying sort of uh, subdivision or uh, like a suburb almost. And so that's why, that's why we, I have this sign up here that says Nizhny Bakansky. It means like lower Bakan village or something like that. But you Nizhny know, bakansky I thought it was funny because in Russian, that's a normal length word. In English, we're like, what? You can't break that up into paragraphs or something, you know? But, but that's a normal length word. And uh, when Steph and I lived in, in, uh, in Rostov back in the 90s, we lived on a street called Kommunisticheski. That's one word. And I, I had terrible time memorizing that and like spelling it. And now it just flows, you know, it's no big deal. Russians have long words. Anyway Nizhny Bekansky Nizhny is more of a village and it's just to the uh like west by southwest kind of along the river from uh from Krimsk itself and it's a, it's a much poorer place um here's a picture out of uh our friend's house this is her back uh view off of her backyard actually and it used to be beautiful lush garden not garden like let's grow um you know flowers kind of garden but potatoes Fruits and vegetables is what is what they grew. Okay, this is a ex, this is an extremely fertile place where we are. It, it, they can grow anything. It's it's actually wine country, so they can grow great grapes. They can do all kinds of stuff. And she had all that in her backyard. And now look at it. It, it looks like it's been you know someone took took a bulldozer and just <laughs> just scraped it off. No topsoil left. Nothing that she had growing. Not not even fences left. She had she had fences all around. Everything set up. It was beautiful. I'm sure it was beautiful. And actually, the, the irony of the situation is that she had just married off her daughter two weeks before the flood happened. And the ceremony didn't take place at the house. They don't do that in Russia. But they did all kinds of videoing and stuff like that. And we saw the wedding video, and it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. The inside the house, outside, everything was just gorgeous. It was, it was like a garden, like just a lovely, beautiful place that you'd want to be. And then the flood happens, and this is, this is what's left. Just destruction. Destruction. Here's some more just random destruction. You can see the the water just powered through there, just really rushed through. This is another view off the back of Aziz's house. Just destruction. This is this is probably five or six families' backyards kind of that used to come together. And they have big fences up and stuff like that. So it's not like it's a communal backyard or anything like that, but it was beautiful. And everybody grows something. Everybody grows something. They never grow grass. <laughs> it's never grass. It's something they can eat. So here, this is uh, the back of another house. This is uh, the back of the house of a friend named Ali. And you're going to see pictures of Ali, and I'm going to tell some stories about him. But there was a giant tree. The, the window there on the right side, the, the, on the ground floor there, uh, that's a like a big picture window. It's actually kind of unusual for Russia. And it's right in the kitchen. And after the flood, there was a giant tree sticking out of it. <laughs> His house, you can see it's made out of cinder blocks. And um, so the structure is fine. But it's as if you had gone in and torn everything off the wall and up off the floor and just shoved it outside. It was all gone. You walk through and it it just, it stunk because there was just mud, that nasty, sticky, silty mud that you don't know what's in it was in it. And so... He, um, they, can't, they can't even sleep on the second floor. The second floor wasn't touched, but they can't even sleep there because the smell is so bad from the ground floor. They don't even like to be inside the house. But that's where he took us to serve us coffee. So we were sitting in the kitchen, didn't smell good, and we were drinking instant coffee with Ali. I got some stories about that too. All right, so this, let me go back here. These had been provided by the Russian version of FEMA. It's called M.J.S., but it's the Russian version of, of FEMA. And so places who um, that had their homes destroyed and didn't have a place to sleep and, and didn't have neighbors to go to or whatever, they they provided these uh, tents for them, great tents um, provided for them. So this is just in Aziza's backyard. You'll see pictures of Aziza in a minute. But, so the water comes through, rushes through, and this is a picture through the floorboard in the house. This is just the mud that used to be dirt underneath the house, right? There's no There's no, like, full foundation or or anything like that. It's just mud. And so water gets in there, and then it's covered up, of course, with the flooring, and it just is going to stay wet forever. And it's going to breed mold. It's going to rot every wooden thing in sight. It's going to reek horribly, and it's going to... So, anyway, the flooring itself uh, is just plank flooring. It's like two-by-sixes, essentially. And it was so rotten at that point that you could take a, a, a crowbar or something and shove it right through it. You could walk on it safely, but it was easy to bust up. So that's what they needed done. So here, Steve is on the right. Obviously, I'm on the left. Ted is in the middle. Steve's a a missionary friend of ours. Ted is an American businessman who recently married a Russian woman, and uh, he was a classmate of mine in language school. And uh, he's an engineer and all kinds of stuff. He was very handy to have. So we were just tearing stuff up, and the girls were tearing things down. This is... um, This is a Russian doctor, Vrach. If you would, um, before I get too far into the story, I'd like you to open up to Luke chapter 10, please. I'm going to read through the story here of Jesus sending out the seventy-two, sort of as a framework uh, to help understand kind of what went on, what we did, um, things like that, while we were there. I am going to read just the first couple of verses. Luke chapter ten. Uh, Jesus has just been rejected in the Samaritan uh, in a Samaritan village. And he's been chatting with um, his disciples and others about the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Christ. And um, and then it says in in verse 1 of chapter 10, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the Harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. This Russian doctor is one of those laborers that got sent out. She was uh, she's from that church uh, that I told you about in, in Krimsk, and she decided she wanted to go with us. She hopped in, and um, she's a widow, and she's a doctor, uh, or something between a doctor and a, and a nurse. I'm not. I, I didn't quite understand what exactly she was but she just went out there and um she took her bag of medical stuff and she walked around the village and just went walking and asking people do you have do you have problems that i I can take care of medical problems physical problems that i can address and she went around and she helped different people with different kinds of things and and um it was very interesting she came back she'd been gone poor lady i mean it was hot hot it was over a hundred and the humidity is in the 90 90, 95 percent range It's just impossible right it's deadly and you're out there working and, and she's walking around carrying this big heavy bag going from place to place talking to people and she came back just so full of joy she had she had been able to work with different people in different situations and and of course these are poor people who are living out in in a place that's been destroyed and uh you know unsanitary and infection and all kinds of problems and so she she ran across this one woman who had a some sort of an infection in her leg and um so she, she asked this woman, do you have you know medical things I can take care of or whatever? And she said, yeah, I've got this infection in my leg. And so she, she went to this woman and she, you know, there wasn't any real open wound or anything. It was just kind of, you know, wasn't much she could do for it there, you know, out in the village. And so she did what she could and she put like new wraps or I don't remember what all she did. Uh, this was day one I had been there. So my Russian was still pretty rusty. So who knows what she told me. She may have told me the whole thing exactly. And I just didn't, didn't catch it. But anyway, so she, she helps this woman as best she can. And then when it's done, she says, I, I don't have any more help for you, but I can pray for you. Can I pray for you? And the lady said, okay, sure. And so, so this, the doctor lays her hands on the lady's leg and she said, it was just a really hot, you know, you can tell it's just, it was infected really hot and she started praying. And as she was praying, she was sensing that the leg was cooling down. She wasn't sure, but that's what she thought as she was praying she was praying that God would heal her. And when it got done, the leg felt normal to her. And so she asked the lady, how does your leg feel? And she said, it feels fine. It feels fine. It, it feels good. And she was kind of shocked by that. And that opened the door for this doctor lady to be able to share the gospel to this lady. That, that she, she didn't know about Christ. She didn't know... Uh, anything more than she had learned in the Russian Orthodox Church. And so this lady was able to share the gospel with her that that Jesus is the living God, that he offers himself as a sacrifice to atone for her sins, that she can be restored to reconcile to uh, relationship with God. And this lady, who had just had this sore leg and had been prayed for, trusted Christ. Right there. Right there. So this lady came back just beaming. So this is one of the workers that was sent out into the harvest. And here we have... Uh, Two people. The one on the left is a brand new Christian girl. Uh, They call her Alice. I'm not sure if it's Alessia or Alisa or what it is in Russian, but my my American friend calls her Alice. She's a brand new Christian, and um, she was out there. She speaks English. She was out there helping us out. She's she's one of these workers. And so she's learning about the Christian life by being out ministering to people, being with other Christians who are ministering to people. She's sitting sitting next to Aziza, Aziza is the woman who's, uh, we were looking at her backyard. And this is the first day we met Aziza. And uh, she's an interesting lady. She's Turkish and uh, speaks Russian and mostly Turkish. She'll yell at everybody else in Turkish and then speak to us in Russian. And she's very kind to us and she kind of bosses everyone else around. Um, I don't know that she's ever heard the gospel. She's had our testimony. She's had, she's received a Bible from us. Uh, she's, she's been, uh, you know, we've, we've prayed there with her and, and, uh, for her, but I don't know. This man in the back, okay, you can see, first of all, the watermark at his shoulder level. That's where the water stayed for long enough to leave that deposit on the wall. This is a Russian guy who's, who's Ali's neighbor. They're, they're all kind of neighbors, small little community we were working in. Russian guy named Nikolai. And, um, we did some work for them, took out their floor, did some other things. And they loved having us there. But it was a very strange experience because though they loved having us there, they didn't like their neighbor. They don't like Ali and they don't like any of their Turkish neighbors. They they liked us coming into their house and being a part of their little of their world, but they, they weren't really comfortable with us going back and forth, functioning between the different cultures, and they certainly didn't want to have anything to do with their neighbors, with their, their Muslim, their Turkish neighbors. And so it was very interesting. This the man Nikolai was very kind. But his wife would go on these rants about their neighbors. It Just just hated them. Just hated them. And very suspicious of one another. When we were, when we were with the Turkish families, they, the Turkish families were telling a story about this Russian guy who had received so much help from the government. And then we go hang out with the Russian guy, and he's telling us, oh, but we haven't, we haven't received anything. It's the Turkish people that have received all this help from the Turkish people. And there was like this envy going on. It was really strange. And, um, and there was, there was just a, a real deep-seated bitterness and, and almost hatred for, for neighbors. It was a, it was a difficult thing. I, was, I taught our Sunday school class the word xenophobia today because that's a big deal. Xenophobia, the hatred of what's different, fear of what's different, hatred of what's different is a big deal. So this is just a random lady. I just thought it was a great picture. I, I never even met her. I don't know who she is. And here's the doctor helping this, this, uh, this older woman with whatever her um, illness was. And this this guy, I kept wanting to get to see this guy, but I, I never I never did get a chance to talk to him. I hope Steve gets to talk to him. All right, there's Ali. All right, Ali's a funny guy. He says he's 60. He looks like he's about 45 or 50, which in Russia, it's usually the other way around, right? You can be 45, 50 and look like you're 60, 65. Uh, but he's Turkish and he's a Muslim guy. He invited us in and we drank coffee with him and, and did all kinds of things, um, at his place and had some very interesting um, conversations with him. I want to continue reading here in Luke chapter 10, kind of to go on with our story. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 3 and go on. Jesus says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Now, I read that because I wonder if Ali is a son of peace. I don't know. I don't know. He's definitely got some questionable things in his story. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of character he really is. But we showed up. They had nothing. He invited us in and we sat in his smelly kitchen, because it's been trashed by the flood, no, no complaint or no, no offense against him, and drank instant coffee. Okay, I'm a coffee snob, but I drank instant coffee, all right, and I liked it, okay? And, um, but he had us in, and he starts talking, and he told us his, uh, his tale of woe, of where he was when the flood happened and what went on, and told us his story, and it was really that that started making the connection, because we were interested in what happened to him, how he survived this, in his problems. And he described this event and that happened, how this all happened and how it came about and the tree coming through the window and everything being washed out and, and uh, all this kind of, just told us his, his problems. And we sat and listened and, um, and we we'd consoled him a little bit and things like that. Um, but he, he was talking to us about his situation and one of the problems that he had was they didn't have a bathroom and hadn't had a bathroom in three weeks. I mean, how long can you hold it? I don't know. So the house didn't have any plumbing inside anyway, okay? But uh, but they had been without a bathroom, an outhouse. Didn't even have that. And so they had been hobbling over, well, walking over to their neighbor's house for three weeks and borrowing their neighbor's outhouse. And they said, we're already, you know, pretty tired of that, fed up with walking over to our... I'm sure they are fed up with us occupying their outhouse too. And so we thought, well, what a great way to uh, to minister to this family to give them an outhouse. Well, so our first thought was, let's build one. How, how, how tough can it be? Well, it, it's probably not too tough, but, you know, I haven't ever done it before. So I can swing a hammer and probably hit a nail. We'll see. But so uh, we, we thought about it, and I, I drew up some plans and started figuring about, okay, let's go buy this and that and get it all put together. And, and finally, we decided, you know what? Let's spend a little bit more money and a third of the time and go buy one. And so we found an outhouse dealer. They do exist. <laughs> loaded the outhouse on top of the van and drove down the road with this outhouse up on top of the van. I have, I have pictures of that too. I think they made it on Facebook actually. And gave this outhouse to Ali. Now, again, back to the envy thing. We, we were just given an outhouse. Like we didn't know it was a big deal. Well, the neighbors saw it as an American outhouse, an American bathroom. Oh, Ali got this American bathroom. And I was thinking, <laughs> I have a bathroom in America and it's not like this. <laughs> but, but, they did. but there was envy there, just this deep-seated distrust and, and, and envy. Uh, very, very, very interesting. So anyway, we, we were laughing. That's, again, Steve there with, with Ali. Ali is an interesting guy. He, he's been married three times. The last time his marriage broke up, he was, he was sick and in the hospital and his family just finally finally got tired of taking care of him. So I don't know if that's because he's a horrible guy or he was a horrible guy or if he's impossible to live with. I don't know. Those things could, could be possibly true. Uh, but anyway, the situation dissolved and his, his wife and kids just said, you know what? We've had it. And they left and they're gone. And so he's, he was left on his own and that's when he met his new wife, his current wife, and um they, they have three children together and um interesting folks. But I wonder if Ali is a son of peace. He uh he followed us around, did some work with us, and uh was willing to pitch in and help, so he kind of became a, a co laborer in a sense. And and what was interesting, what makes me wonder if he's not if he's not this son of peace, not someone who really kind of Um, maybe is positioned in the community to be able to be a great influence for the gospel in different kinds of people's lives. What made me really first wonder that is, first of all, his hospitality towards us. It was a great thing. And second of all, he was willing to go help others and not just help Turks. But he was willing to go to another family and work in this, a, a Tartar family, to work in their home. So these are people he didn't know. They're ethnically different. They're both Muslim but they're ethnically different. And so this is a kind of an un-Russian thing, okay? To be able to to be happy to go into different cultures with people you don't know and help them. Because you kind of, the the idea is you kind of stick with your own and take care of your own, right? And so I kind of wonder that about about Ali. So he, here we are eating some uh, watermelon together. And um, Ali's not smiling. I, they just don't smile for pictures. I didn't get the memo. I smiled. Steve, Steve's got this great straight face. I couldn't do it. This is his wife and one of his daughters, and uh, his wife's name is Ainura. Ainura. It took me like three days to get that figured out. Ainura, and uh, she's she's a lovely, sweet lady. There's their other daughter. I think her name is Inju. I'm not sure. Like angel, almost. This is the uh, this is another home. This is the Tartar home that we worked in. Um, also Muslims. This was kind of an unusual household because there were. There were two brothers and a sister and then I think two daughters-in-law or sisters-in-law and all of, all of the women of that age were pregnant. I never did see a man around for this girl here and I can't even remember her name. I wrote Steve and I I, I don't I, I don't think I ever got her name actually. Anyway, so it's a house a house full of three pregnant women, uh, two young men and then a mom and that, that was their house and so we did quite a bit of work with them and they were very hospitable and... Something interesting about, about Russian culture, again, it's 100 degrees outside, high humidity, sweat is running off of us, just dripping. I mean, we're, we're working hard, and, it, and we're sweating a ton. So lunchtime comes, okay? Well, first of all, we were driving down there, and we got there about noon, so I thought, hey, let's eat in the van so we don't have to stop and eat once we get there. So we ate while we were driving, so we were pretty well full. We got there, and then the mother of the house said, hey, I made food. Are you guys hungry? And we said, oh, we just ate, just ate. No, she said, but I made food for you guys. And so we were like, well, let us work a little bit first. So we worked for an hour, hour and a half, and, and you know, got pretty well warmed up. And then, uh, and then she, she serves us lunch, and it's borscht. Not cold sandwiches, not anything cold. <laughs> it's borscht. And so she takes us into this room out of the sun, but it's stifling. And it's just, there's no air conditioner, of course. It's a zillion degrees in there, and you're eating hot borscht after you've just been working. And you're just about to go work again. I mean, we were literally sweat just running off of us the whole time. But she fed us. She was very hospitable. And uh, so I ended up on my last day there, I gave her a Bible. I had prayed with them previously. I gave her a Bible and explained to her that, that uh, you know, about the greatest gift ever and, and things like that. So this is a relationship of people who opened their homes up to us. Initially, they were very skeptical of us. Why in the world we were, there, were we there and what were the strings that were attached? And she opened her home up. But uh, I wonder if, if, if she's a, a, a son of peace, a child of peace. I don't know. She's new to the area. She's a, she's a lovely woman. And this is Ansar. Ansar is a 15-year-old boy who initially was, again, very skeptical of us being there. And he uh, warmed up to us big time as we worked and spent time together. And then I think really what polished the deal off was when he and I had a pull-up competition. See who could do the most pull-ups. So, I, it was a tie, actually. It was a tie. I thought for sure I could beat a 15-year-old boy, but no. I couldn't, but it made for a great, great relationship. Ansar is his name. And this is another picture of Aziza. And Aziza is a very interesting woman. I wish I could get to know her husband, Maksut, a little bit better. He, he was, he's always at work. And so he's gone. Every time we would show up in the middle of the day to do, to do all this work. And then he would show up after we were gone. And I'm sure he's wondering, who are these people coming in and doing stuff in my house? I don't even know who they are. And so finally we met him on a day we threw a big party and uh, he was real standoffish at first. Like, what are these Americans and Russians, white Russians, doing in my home? He's Turkish. And so he's, he's again, this xenophobia thing. And, of course, natural fear. I mean, this guy's been in your house doing stuff, and who is he, right? You'd want to know. And so I chatted with him, and he, he gradually warmed up to us. But, again, he was gone most of the time. But Aziza took care of us. She fed us uh, great meals. She hosted a big party that we threw there. Um, I wonder if she's a, a, a child of peace, a son of peace. I don't know. And we get, well, that's just that's Aziza's house. So Steve made some chicken. We threw a big party. Like forty five pounds of chicken we made and had this big party. I want to I want to continue reading in our in our uh, narrative here about what Jesus was saying and about what was going on. So go open a, again to uh, Luke chapter ten. So. Verse 6 says, If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a house and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So, this idea of being in people's homes, it's slightly foreign to us, I think. I don't think we spend a lot of time in each other's homes. This is one of the one of the uh, growing aspects of our small group is that we are in each other's homes a lot, okay? We travel around, it's not just in one place, we're in each other's homes. You can relate to people in a different way when you're in their home, when you're in their environment, when they're providing what, what you're eating, when they have made uh, what it is you're eating or drinking, right? And so that's what happened here. We, I, I think about Ali's kitchen and I'll, I'll try to remember all the days and all the things we did at, at Ali's house. First, we show up at Ali's house and he's thinking, who are you people? And the first thing he does, we, ought, we show up and say, hey, you know, do you have anything we can help you with? He says, let's go drink coffee. We said, no, we want to go help you. No, let's go drink coffee. So we sat down in his kitchen and we drank coffee and we chatted. And that's when we heard his tale of woe, right? That's when we heard about what happened with the flood and where he was, that half of his family was gone out of town and the other half was huddled with him upstairs while this, you know, the floodwaters are rising. And so, you, you know, we were involved in his life. We heard about the pain, the angst of his life, the fear that he had. And then we did some stuff that day and mostly just talked about what, what kind of things he would need done. And uh, he needed a new this, he needed some more of that, he needed a bathroom, okay? So then we came back the second day and uh, we, you know, we show up. Hey, Ali, how you doing? Hey, let's drink coffee, all right? So we go in the kitchen and we're drinking coffee again. Well, this time we had a uh, a russian a russian korean guy with us okay a russian korean guy and who had grown up in uzbekistan no who had grown up in kazakhstan this is pretty typical okay a russian korean from kazakhstan okay so so he he was there with us and uh, he sits down and he and ali start chatting and come to find out they ali grew up around a whole bunch of uh, korean christian uh, korean russians in kazakhstan so they've got this huge connection, this cultural connection. Remember the xenophobia thing? That's out the window when, when this guy Vova was there, when he was there with us because he's, he's this Russian-Korean from Kazakhstan. And uh, Ali spent, spent many years there. So they chatted on and on and come to find out Ali, who is a Turk, knows Korean. But Vova, who is Korean, does not know Korean. So they were laughing about that. <laughs> but there were these connections made and walls being lowered. Vova's a Christian. He's able to share. He's able to talk a little bit. So he was there with us. Uh, Ali puts this bread out on the table. It looks like a wheel. It's just, it's this, puts it out on the table. And Steve and I were sitting there drinking. And, you know, we didn't want to take from these poor people who don't have two pennies to rub together. And so we're drinking our coffee. And volva. he sees that and he's like, oh, you have this special kind of, you know, Kazakh bread. (laughs) He just digs into it and starts chowing down. Which showed a very uh, great respect and honor to Ali. Because he was accepting his hospitality with such gusto. So we dug into so that was day two, we build relationships. Day three, we show up with a bathroom. That was a good thing, right? So we show up, we've got the bathroom on top. Hey, let's drink coffee, right? So we go in we drink coffee. And it was that time when we're sitting there drinking coffee that I get to share the gospel with him. First time he's ever heard it in my terrible Russian. I explained the gospel as best I could at his kitchen table drinking drinking instant coffee, okay? I was going to say bad coffee, but it was just instant <laughs> Day four, we're there, and um, I'll get to that a little bit more. Uh, We we learned about his daughter. His daughter is in a cast and is 13 years old, has been in a cast since she was like two or three. She's been in a cast her whole life, okay? And I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But all of this happened because we were in his kitchen. We were in his kitchen. We didn't bring him to our church. We didn't bring him to our house necessarily, which is a good thing too. But we were in his kitchen. And we were benefiting from his hospitality, okay. And all of these things come about. The walls are down. We have a we have a good relationship with him now. Steve has his cell phone number. They talk on the phone. All right. This is gonna. This relationship is going to continue. So, here we are. This is this is a picture of us and Steve making forty five or fifty pounds of chicken that Parkside bought, by the way. Well done. And uh, we threw this whole party. It was a little strange. We show up with the food at Aziza's house, and we say, "Hey, can we throw a party in her house?" And it's she's from a hospitable culture. That's a, I mean, I'm sure we stepped on some toes culturally there, but it worked out really well. We hung out with them. We had a big party. It's not very. It's a little dark, but there are tons of people around. We brought um, some Russian Christians with us, musicians. We brought a drummer and a guitar player, and the the guitar player's wife who sings and plays whatever those shaky things are. Shakers? I don't know what they're called. Shakers are what you put on sandwiches. Anyway, plays the shakers. And so, and so we would get there, and they just start singing these Russian Christian songs, just chorus songs or whatever, right? So they're singing. Well, then the Turks say, hey, we've got a son in our family who plays the piano or the keyboard really well. And So they bring the keyboard out, they bring it out. They would play a Turkish song. We have no idea what they said. And then we would, they would play a Christian song, a Russian Christian song, and then back and forth. And this is how we had this party. It was a lot of fun, right? The only part of it that we turned down was the vodka they offered us. We, we turned that down. But we had, a, we had a great time. It was fun. We were enjoying their hospitality, in a sense, because they opened their home up. We provided the food. But uh, Russian Christians singing. And it was a, a real discipleship opportunity for these Russian Christians because that xenophobia that exists in the culture exists in the church. The problems that are in the culture are, are in the church also. I don't know if you know that, right? Here, too. But the fear that people have of what's different exists within the church too. And so this was an opportunity for them to be stretched, to be pulled out of their comfort zone and taking, taken with us into this new situation, to share the gospel in a new situation, to be the gospel in a new situation, to show the love of Christ in these people's lives. Good times. It was a great party. We had a lot of fun. It was a, it was a, a great party. It was well-timed. And it all... Uh, I thought was very, uh, very productive. Built a lot of relationships, built a lot of community that hadn't been built otherwise. We tried to invite all kinds of people to this party. Only the Turks came. The Russians wouldn't come to it because they don't have anything to do with it. We, we invited this one, the Tartar family, but they're new to the area, so they didn't really know them. One girl came, the pic- girl I showed you the picture of, uh, the pregnant girl, she showed up. She was there for a little bit, but she was uncomfortable because she didn't know anybody, so she left. So we tried to get them to mix. And it didn't really work out, but we tried to. Back to Luke chapter 10. So whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, this is Ali's daughter. Her name is Gulfiris Gulfiras. so we'll call her Gulia. She, she's the girl who, who fell and broke her leg when she was little. Gangrene set in. And essentially, what the way they said it was it ate the bone. So that she's missing either one or both bones in her lower leg. So she's been in a cast since she was little. Okay, She's had eight operations. And I won't show you any closer pictures of the leg because it's tough to handle. She's had eight surgeries. And the leg, it was still open. when we I mean, it wasn't quite healed from the last surgery when we were there. Stunk horribly. Bad situation. The family just lost all of their source of income because they had two greenhouses in their backyard. This is Ali's family again. Had two greenhouses in their backyard that they would grow fruits and vegetables and they would sell them in the local market. That was their source of income that Ali would tell us about. It's possible there might be other things going on that we don't know. We'll find that out later. But, but anyway, so that's gone. The, the greenhouses are gone. The garden's gone. The topsoil's gone. Income is gone. She's stuck, right? Jesus just said, heal all the sick when you go there. Heal all the sick when you go there. So when we showed up, we learned about his daughter. Again, this is the fourth or fifth time in his kitchen. We learned more and more details. Actually, I wasn't even there. Steve was there eating a different lunch. I was eating borscht. He was eating something else at their house. I don't know. The second meal, that second lunch that day. And he's explaining the situation. He's chatting. And he, he learns about this situation. And so this is a problem. She's She is not doing well. The leg's infected. She lives in a horrible Unclean environment. What's going to happen? We don't know. She needs more surgeries to finish, but they have no source of income now because they're essentially illegal immigrants or the Russian version thereof. They don't have any income coming from the government either or no medical support, no nothing. So we made a connection through a connection through a connection. Our former pastor knew a guy who was a doctor who could uh, who could perform this surgery. There was actually a couple more steps removed than that. But we put Ali and his family in touch with this doctor who can perform the surgery. Ali's not a Christian. The doctor's not a Christian. But all the connections in between are. And so, uh, pretty interesting situation, ha- how that came about. So, they, she already had her first meeting with the doctor. They're trying to figure out what's, how they're going to proceed and whatever. And by the way, the money that we sent is going to pay for it. Because they, don't, they, they, can't, they can't do anything like that. Now, so that's, that's, one, that's one route of possibly getting her healed. Is to this to this doctor. Another route is that uh, my friend Steve, who lives in Krasnodar, was talking to an American businessman, friend of his, who's uh, wealthy and a Christian, is married to a Russian lady. This Russian lady is friends with the governor's wife, the governor of the region, who, by the way, wants to kick out all Turks, okay, and has made declarations and things like that to kick out the Turks. So he wants to do that. Well, this the governor's wife is friends with this with this Christian businessman's wife, who is a friend of Steve. Anyway, it's all connected. So she brings the case to the governor. We need to get this girl healed. Look, she's in this terrible situation. We need to get this taken care of. So, so the guy who wants to kick out the Turks is now being asked by his loving wife to heal this Turkish lady. I think that's so great. That's God doing that. But imagine, of course, we don't know what's going to come of it. I mean, she may be you know, have have the surgery next month and be good to go and be great the rest of her life and live her life hating God. We don't know, right? We don't know what's going to happen. But imagine the the sense of God loves me. Christ loves me. It wasn't Islam that set this thing up. It wasn't the Russian government or my Turkish culture or my dad or anybody that set this thing up. It was Jesus who made it so that I can walk. And imagine Ali's sense of of uh, gratitude towards God. We don't know what's going to happen. But Jesus said, heal everyone there. And this is the best we could do. So, I have some takeaways. I'll take her leg away for one. This, this sign here uh, on the back of a car driving down there says, essentially, and what about you? Did you help Krimsk? And I just thought that was ironic because I could show it to you and say, yes, you did. Okay. All right. So some takeaways. First thing that I personally took away from this is again that, that challenge of the Lord asking me, Brandon, are you improving your building? Are you working on your own stuff and the world is dying and going to hell around you? And I want you to ask yourself that question. We need to ask ourselves, corporately and individually, that question: Are we focused on ourselves? I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to you guys later. I'm focused. I'll get to the world, the dying world, later. I've got stuff to take care of. I've got my own thing I'm doing here. That was a real challenge to me because I could see. I mean, I wasn't just pointing the finger because I see it in my own heart. That's what I do. I'm, I I focus so much on my own stuff that I lose sight of the big picture, the kingdom of God, eternity. I've got more stories connected to that, but I I can't tell them. So that's the first takeaway. The second one is you guys were very generous, very generous, and supplied for this trip very well. And I was able to take several thousand dollars to go and help in this effort. And I showed up and I said, Steve, I've got this money and I'm here. I want to help. And essentially, Steve said, we'll get to the money later. Let's go. Okay. And so he and I went down there and we did this and that. We did this and that. And I said, Steve, you know, I, you know we've, I've got this money. I'd kind of like to be, you know, using it. I want to see, you know, we, let's, let's don't be overlooking things but just because of the money, because we've got the money. Now let's just go. We need to be there. We need to be there. And so day two, we go down. Still hadn't spent any money. I, I, we had bought a couple tools. That was about it. Day three, we bought a uh, an American bathroom. So some of the money went towards that. Day four, we threw a shindig, right? This big party. We funded all that. But the whole point of the big party was to get all of us together, to get everybody together. It was an opportunity. So, and that, that was again and again the situation. And Steve and I started realizing that, you know what? The the money is going to be very helpful and it's going to make some things possible, like Guglia's surgery, things like that. But it was so secondary. Having someone on the ground being there, being involved in face to face ministry, that was what was valuable and that was what was powerful. I mean we, we gave we gave Ali a bathroom and he gave us coffee. Okay, and that was sort of the trade. And so much ministry happened in the exchange of those things. It was incredible. And so my takeaway on that is just the value on being involved personally in people's lives. Being there with them in their lives involved personally. And that was a challenge to me because I can tend to show up on a Sunday, do my thing and go. Or I can, I can give my check and go. Or I can, I can do this, you know, f- this drive-by ministry. Hey, I'm here. How are you doing? Ministry, ministry, ministry. I'm out of here. I'm back to being about my own life. Okay, I I, I can do that. I fall into that very easily, and I'm not alone. It was being there in their lives. In their lives. That's what made the difference. That was the real ministry. Turn, if you would, to uh, Revelation chapter 2. This kind of sums up what the Lord was saying to me in this time. Revelation chapter 2. Okay, this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to John, but he's dictating letters that John is supposed to write to these different churches. The first one is to the church in Ephesus. And uh, he says this. Verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is Jesus, the one who has intimate and ultimate authority over the church. He's involved within our church. He's, he's involved within all Christian churches. And he's an ultimate authority over the top of them. This is Jesus speaking, right? And he says, he says, look, Ephesians, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So Jesus essentially says, good job on these things. Good job. You're sticking with it. You're enduring. You're patient. You're toughing it out. You're identifying those false teachers just like you should be. You're sticking with good works. You're not, you're not allowing uh, evil within your midst, etc. Good job. All right, so so far it sounds pretty good. Now verse 4 is the killer. But I have this against you. That you've abandoned the first, or the love you had at first. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, that that hurts. That's hard. Now, right? What love is he talking about? Well, probably if, if we go back to Luke chapter ten, the story there. Uh, the guy asks him, what, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? Well, it, Jesus asks the man, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. Jesus says, right on. Good job. Those are the two greatest loves. Love God and love each other. Love God and love each other. Okay? And Jesus comes along right here in verse 4, and he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned that love that you had at first. Now, these Ephesian Christians weren't nutcases, Okay, This wasn't crazy stuff going on. This wasn't Corinth. These were good Christian folks. They were patient. They were enduring. They weren't growing weary. They were sticking with it. They were identifying evil. They were, they were doing it. Okay, They're living the Christian life. Only something was missing. There was something missing. You have abandoned the love you had at first that's a challenge for me, and I want it to be a challenge for you. As I was standing there in Nizhny and I'm looking at these different houses that are destroyed, yards that are destroyed, roads that are, that are horrible, and all this smelling the smell, and I'm thinking, this right here is where people are. This is real ministry, loving people in this way. There is no greater thing on earth for me to be doing right now than what I'm doing. Shoveling for this lady. Ripping a floor out for this guy. Okay, there's no greater thing. I'm right there, I'm in the midst of it, showing practical love for God and love for these people and what I was doing. So how, you know, how was I doing two weeks earlier? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything crazy. Not a Corinthian. I was sticking with it. I was doing the right things. Okay? I was I was obedient. But had I left my first love? I don't know. But that's challenging to me and I want it to be challenging to you. Because we can go through life living a certain way and be dead wrong. I want to continue reading what he says here. Verse 5. So he's just said, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he says, first of all, remember from where you've fallen. Remember when you first, first met Christ, when you first fell in love with him. Remember that. Think about that. Think about what it was like. I didn't know the rules as a new Christian. I didn't know any of the rules as a new Christian. But I was, I was walking with God, loving Him. Remember that, Brennan. Remember your, from where you've fallen. Repent. Turn from where you are now, the way you're going now. A dead, entrenched, Life in the ruts. Can't get out of the ruts. But the ruts are good. They're going the right direction. But they are not based on love for God. They're going a certain direction. They're not based on love for God. Return to the works you did at first. Remember how you lived as a brand new Christian? Live that way. Maybe with a little more wisdom. <laughs> Particularly in my case. But return to those works. If not, he says, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. Now, what's the lampstand represent in this thing? In this story here? He says in the end of chapter 1 that what the lampstand represents. It represents the church. And so, this is a big deal. He's writing to an entire church. And I'm, I'm applying this to myself personally and I want you to do the same for yourself personally. But it also applies to a church. We are not to live a life that looks great but has no heart. Doing all the right things but is heartless. Walking a certain way. They're called Pharisees. I'm a Pharisee. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and return to the works you did before. So that's the challenge I bring back. Uh, that God challenged me with and I want to challenge you with. Take that to heart. And I hope, like I asked when we first started, that you've been praying throughout. Lord, what does this mean for me? What are you saying to me? Where am I in this picture? Where Where am I in this story? I hope, I hope you've been doing that. And I hope the Lord's been speaking to you. And go out and, and talk about this with your family. Talk about this with your friends. We need to think about these things. The Lord has really shaken me up about this, and I want you also to be shaken with it. Life is not about following a set of rules. Even though they're great rules, it's a relationship with Christ. And how is that relationship? Distant? Cold? Dusty? Or is it warm and vibrant? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, loving me often in spite of uh, my lack of love for you or my waning love or fickle. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would work in my heart and in the hearts of everyone in this room that we would examine our lives, examine every aspect of our lives to see are we focusing on ourselves to the exclusion of a dying world around us? Are we busy improving our uh, situation and ignoring the cries of those who are dying? Or am I going through life doing a great job following the rules and forgetting the heart, forgetting the relationship with you? Lord, help us. Lord, help us. I pray that you would convict us and that you would then comfort us by your spirit, encourage us and lead us to repentance, that we would remember and repent and return. I pray that you would do that for us, Lord. Thank you for this time, for our time together. Thank you for your love for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.